I need a second to uh, compose myself. The song about holiness. What an attribute. Everything about God comes from that. And in some ways that's going to be the focus of the message today. Um, some things that God have laid on my heart. But just want to share one other thing first. That uh, You know, one of my favorite authors is Victor Hugo. And uh, one of the books that I uh, like to read was Les Miserables. Are you familiar with Les Mis, all right? And if you have a good book about the theme of redemption and grace woven throughout the entire life of Jean Valjean. And if you've ever uh, had a hard copy of that book, you know it's about this thick. <laughs> and it takes a long time to read. It was hard for me to carry that around on my airplane when I was flying uh, all my various trips. And the reason it was so thick was that because at that time, the authors were paid by the number of words that they wrote. So it was prime candidate for having big books. And that's why you see David Copperfield that thick as well by Dickens. But you can also get copies of that book that are clearly much smaller in size. And what the way they've done that is they've taken out all of the fluff words that, uh, that were introduced by the, in the book to uh, pad it to uh, make those extra dollars, right? So my goal today is that uh, I have hours and this, the topics that we're going to talk about could have hours and hours and hours of content. And I promise you I've reduced it down to less than a day. <laughs> so that's the goal for today. Yeah, no. <laughs> but yeah, it's New Year's. And we, of course, at this time start making resolutions. We think about the past. We look in the rearview mirror. 2023, we look in the telescope of 24, and what do we envision? What do we hope we're going to encounter? And there's, you know, there's a number of resolutions that you can find that people have um, stated that maybe they're a little bit interesting, right? For example, I might, I'm going to, one of my resolutions might be I'm going to unfriend every person who shares their unsolicited diet or exercise regimen. I don't want that. I'm going to become the goat of sarcasm. <laughs> the greatest of all time was sarcasm. I'm going to stay in the bathroom while I brush my teeth. <laughs> That's my fault for this year. I'm going to lose weight again and ignore the idea of resolutions completely. Right? So I resolve not to make any resolutions. But King David had a resolution. He made a resolution. He had what I call his manifesto. And this is found in Psalm 101, which is where we're going to be principally focused today. Psalm 101. Now scholars think that maybe David wrote this psalm when he was anointed, knowing he was going to at some point become king. Other scholars think that this was maybe psalm, his, um, uh, he penned this maybe when he was actually 
became king, was anointed as king, uh, coronated as king, uh, as king. Either way, it's still mostly, most scholars attribute it to David and his um, kingship. And it's David's expression of how he wants to live, how he wants to rule the nation of Israel. And as we look through this passage, you will also see that there are many parts of this that also apply to family life. He refers to how he wants to be, how he wants to lead his family. So I want to take a moment and let's, let's read David's manifesto and get the sense of this. And we're probably only going to focus on the first half of this, um, this passage. But this is Psalm 101. I will sing of your love and justice, Lord. I will praise you with songs. I will be careful to live a blameless life. When will you come to help me? I will lead a life of integrity in my own home. I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. I hate all who deal crookedly. I will have nothing to do with them. I will reject perverse ideas and stay away from every evil. I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. I will not endure conceit and pride. I will search for faithful people to be my companions. Only those who are above reproach will be allowed to serve me. I will not allow deceivers to serve in my house, and liars will not stay in my presence. My daily task will be to ferret out the wicked and free the city of the Lord from their grip. This is David's statement, how he wants to live his life as king. And as I said, much of this can also be applied to the family life. And so I'm just going to work through, we're just going to work through, uh, visit a few of these verses and, uh, and, and highlight those. And I want to highlight them in light of the songs that we just sang about God's holiness and, and the purity that we uh, saw in those verses. Because it's been very heavy on my heart for the last year or two. And, and interestingly, recently there were some discussions that came up and with others and it's kind of been a burden on their heart as well. And so I felt like this was maybe what God was leading me to speak on. And I don't know if anything that I'm going to say is relevant to you. I hope it is. Maybe it's for somebody that's viewing online. Maybe it's somebody that's going to view the content a year from now. I don't know. But this, is, uh, this has been heavy on my heart and I, I felt like this is where I was supposed to go. So we're going to kind of work our way through some of these verses. And if we find ourselves as being able to live a life as David has laid out here. We find ourselves also being able to live the life that Paul is calling for us to live. Because we have many passages in the New Testament that tell us how we should be living our life. 
and how even us as leaders in the church should be living our lives, how we as parents should be living our lives, right? And one of those examples, of course, is we can find, uh, just picking one here, is 1 Timothy. If you turn to 1 Timothy verse, chapter 3, and from 1 Timothy 3, 4, we can see that he says, he's talking about leaders in the church and how they must be able to manage their own family well. And, and uh, the children must be respecting and obeying him, right? But, they, but if we look above this, we see that Paul is also telling him that the leaders must be faithful to his wife, but he must exercise self-control and live wisely and have a good reputation. So that's what, that's what David is pleading for in this psalm and committing to in Psalm 101, to be able to live a life wisely. And it's interesting that he starts this passage. The first verse is, I will sing of your love and justice, Lord. Or some verses may say mercy and justice. Now you think about those two words, they are almost polar opposites of each other, right? Justice is you are getting what you deserve. Mercy, on the other hand, is saying, I am sparing you from what you deserve. And so these are sometimes called the April words, the, the April, uh, month of April words, where it's showers and sunshine. We see the good and the bad. That we are going to praise you with songs, as he says there in verse 1, I will sing. How often do we sing of the justice? We don't do that very much, do we? We sing a lot about mercy. We sing a lot about love. But he's commending us here to even sing through justice, through the hard times of our life. I will be careful to live a blameless life. When will you come to help me? That's an interesting expression that he's saying, right? He's saying, first of all, I want to live a blameless life. How does he know what a blameless life is? What, does, what is David saying that he is going to do so that he can live a blameless life? He's got to study the word. He's got to study the law. He has to know what is expected of him in order to be able to fulfill this commitment. So he's saying, God, I am going to live a blameless life and I'm going to know what you expect of me. When are you going to come and be with me? Because he's saying, God, it, it would be the greatest honor to have you live with me and I won't be ashamed to have you with me because I am going to live a blameless life. Now we know he, he, he still messed up, didn't he? We still know that, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But he knows what that is. He's studying the law. And he probably, through that study, was very aware of what Samuel had to say to Saul, even, right? He, he was around when this happened. Remember Saul offered the sacrifice that he was not supposed to offer, he wasn't supposed to do that, right? He wasn't part of the, the priesthood to be able to do this. And Samuel, Samuel um, confronted him, and he said what words? Remember, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. 
I think that we maybe at times feel that sacrifice is better than obedience. And what might that sacrifice be? Well, I'm just going to try to give up this particular vice that I have. I might try to stop doing this. And that's my sacrifice. So I'm good. No. He's calling us to obey. Now, that's a little different because we have to be very careful what we mean by obedience. We have to be very careful that we are not being obedient in order to try to gain our salvation. We know that's not the case. We know we're not, being, we're not to be obedient in order to be saved. That's what the problem was even in Galatians. If you think about Galatians and Paul had the whole issue with the Judaizers who felt like the people needed to go back to the law and be circumcised. They were wanting to follow the law in order to be saved. No, we're supposed to be obedient so that we are expressing our love and our honor to God. That's, that's the motive for the obedience. It's not the sacrifice. It's the obedience, showing God our love, our gratitude through obedience. And so you think about it, this is one of the obstacles that people coming to Christ have, right? Uh, I have to, I'm not allowed to do this, 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 and this, and this. It's one of the obstacles you frequently hear. Their, their mindset is wrong. Oh, I have to do that to be saved. No. We choose to do that in order to express our love and devotion to God. All right? And that's what he's saying. I want to know those laws. I want to obedient, be obedient because I love you. And when will you come and be with me? When will you live with me? I will lead a life of integrity in my own home. Integrity is a big word, even though it's only three syllables. It has a lot of depth to it. It means, what am I doing? What, am, what are the choices I am making when I am alone? When I am by myself, right? How am I behaving? We have a you know, think about it, we have a very strong example of integrity through Christ. There was an incident in Christ's life where it, he demonstrated integrity. Because he had that time in his life where he, for 40 days, was alone, alone in the wilderness and was being tempted by Satan. And yet, in spite of those temptations, in spite of his alone time, he demonstrated integrity. Because that's part of his character. That was part of the holiness. Right? And that's what we should be striving for, is the integrity. What are we, who are we, when we are alone? How are we behaving? And that's a, that's a tough thing, because it's, too easy to fall into temptation when we're by ourselves, but that's what we want to be. You know, I guess another way to think about that is that the way we behave by ourselves is an also an expression of how we view one of the attributes of God in particular, His omnipresence. 
if we really truly believe that God is with us, that God is with us even when we're by ourselves, would we choose to sin? Would we still fall for that? Would we do that? I think that, you know, we don't, we are clearly in, within our own humanity don't fully understand what omnipresence means. We can't understand the infinity. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't live as if God isn't looking over our shoulder. Emily, I guess you, you have in your Sunday school room with the kids, right? You have a, um, a sheet of paper spread out on the tables. And the, the, the students in her class are allowed to draw and write on those sheets with one particular guideline. And what is it? Right? They have to write as if God is looking over their shoulder. And that's what we should be thinking as well. We should be living as if God is present. We need to be plumbing the depths of that attribute, understanding it, because understanding it will change the way we live. I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. I hate all who deal crookedly. I will have nothing to do with them. It's interesting, we, when we think about vile and vulgar, those words in the uh, Hebrew, actually there's a couple definitions. One of them is worthless. The, the Hebrew words are often interpreted as worthless, but they are also in places interpreted as vile. And I think that depending on what versions of, the, of this passage that you're reading, what version of Scripture, you'll see some of them reflect that as, with the one definition of worthless, others as vile. And, and if you really contemplate that, they're not that different. Because the things that are vile are worthless, aren't they? The things that are vile are worthless. Now, that doesn't mean things that are worthless are necessarily vile. The, revert, the inverse is not necessarily true. We can have a lot of things in our lives that are worthless, but that doesn't mean that they're sinful. Now, they might be, they might be an obsession for you. They might be a, that might be a problem. But something worthless doesn't necessarily mean vile, right? But vile definitely is worthless. And I think about what in David's time would fall in that category? What would be the things in his life that he would consider to be vile? Because I think that's the word that's meant here. And the things that come to my mind are clearly, the first things that come to my mind are idol-related um, behaviors. Because as we know, the nation of Israel has struggled with idol worship throughout that time. And the idol worship could, uh, the behaviors around that could have a, a, a spectrum of um, things associated with that. From child sacrifices to um, lewd behaviors and up to pro, uh, offering uh, non-sanctioned sacrifices, grain offerings that God didn't command or authorize, right? We have that whole spectrum that, that I think David would consider to be vile. Now clearly today, 
We don't, in our sanctuary, have an altar here where we're doing child sacrifice. We do as a society. We have the, we have the altar of abortion that we're battling. And thank you to those who are involved actively, proactively fighting that. But that's maybe some of the things that he was thinking about when he was talking about vile. But what about today? We don't, we don't have those altars, as I said. So what is, what is vile today? And I think there are a lot of a lot of things that we could consider to be vile behavior. We see it in our cultures, right? We have the, the, the misgenderings that go on. We have uh, many other aspects in our society that are perverting what it is that God has ordained in his word. And I think, uh, and, and, and unfortunately, a lot of things are very, um, very too open to us, right? Too available. And I'm thinking particularly, you could imagine, is things like, uh, like pornography. How easy that is to access. How, and how insidious it is in our, to, in our lives. Because it's so easy for that to be encountered. Um, you could be very casually browsing and all of a sudden you're confronted with, with something and you weren't looking for that, but there it was, right? Because it's so easy in our, with our technologies today to encounter that. But sadly, that particular topic is one that is very much a problem within the church, within the Christian church. There are... There are uh, several surveys, and they all pretty much agree on these numbers that indicate that roughly 70% of men in the church have a struggle at, to some degree or another with this, with this particular problem. 30% of women. It's a big issue. And unfortunately, it kind of makes the church look like Noah's Ark. It stinks. <laughs> We're not perfect, right? But if you think about Noah's Ark, um, it's the only thing that floats. The church is the only thing that floats. It is God's, the way I read about this, the church is all we have to represent Christ to one another and to the world. God's plan is the church. There is no plan B. We are it. And we should be living a life that allows Christ to be seen through us. But unfortunately, we allow the culture to define sin for us. We allow, as a, we allow the culture to say, well, that used to be bad, but we know better now. And so that's not, that's okay, you can do that, right? That whole shift in our society has been very progressive and is uh, we have to be fighting that. That we don't even, that we have to be careful that we don't even subconsciously embrace the new definitions. You know, in, in the 1950s, there were certain publications that came out, you can think, right? And we wrote obscenity laws, or obscenity laws were written to um, control that. Those obscenity laws today are by hum human definition, tame. We're talking about tame things compared to what we can in encounter today. 
And the shift of what's sinful is now way over here. But Jesus, in it, when he was preaching, he told us what the definition of sin is. Because sin, his definition, is not mutable. It is going to be the same. It is going to remain unchanged. Jesus reset the definition because even in his time, it was a problem in its own way. Whoever looks on a woman and lusts has committed adultery. But we, we now think passive viewing is okay, right? And that's the way the culture is. It's not. And some people get very trapped inside of this. So we want to, we need as a as a individuals, as parents, as a church, we need to make sure that we are staying in the right definition of sin as described here and not on our phones. All right? That's the battle we are facing. Obviously, obviously not everybody's perfect. And that some, of these, some of these subjects are very easy to become addicted to. Right? There are people who struggle with that. And if they do, then we need, how are we going to deal with it? Right? The, and one of the things that we need to re remember is that when we are in this, we again are maybe forgetting the attribute of the, omnis uh, the omnipresence of God. But we might also be forgetting the holiness of God because that is what is defining sin. What are the standards? The standard is God's holiness. And if we are searching, embracing and the, the depths of that through scripture study, we definitely are getting a, our definition of sin reset. But how do we deal with it? I mean, if we... If we are trapped, if we are trapped within addictions, whether it's pornography or anything else, how do we deal with that? It's a tough thing. It's often very difficult to deal with by yourself. Clearly, clearly we know that we need to identify that as an issue within our lives. We need to confess that. And 1 John 1.9 gives us the guidance and the promise of the redemption, of our confession, the restoration, right? But there are other things that we need to do uh, because there's, there's the spiritual aspect, but we still are faced with these things in the world. What do we need to do? One of the, one of the things that we might want to do is identify the triggers. What is it that makes us continuously come back to a particular sin? What is causing us to do that? There might be situations that you allow yourself to get into, and when you get into that, now you fall into that temptation. Find out what those triggers are. Another step would be finding an accountability partner. Who is it that you feel comfortable with that you can <clears throat> communicate with and say, I failed today. I failed on this. And that person can pray with you and bring you back. <clears throat> Here's a story about three pastors who got together regularly. 
and they decided to become accountability partners with each other and they said well I think we need to share our besetting sins let's start with that so the first pastor said uh, hesitantly he said well gotta tell you my besetting sin is gambling every time I get online I have to log into the, the my gambling site and I'm spending much of my money and I'm keeping it secret from my wife and my church and it's a real problem for me oh brother that's bad they said we'll pray for you a few minutes later the second pastor said well okay I'll share mine mine is alcohol I have bottle stashed away everywhere and from the time I wake up in the morning till the time I go to bed I'm struggling with that, and I too have kept that hidden from my, my family, my wife, and my church. And then a few minutes later, they looked at the third pastor and said, what about you? We've shared. And he said, well, mine's gossip, and I can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> but the, uh, we get to find an accountability partner that is one that you can trust, right? Find an accountability partner. And, and, uh, and be honest with them. You've got to find the void. What is it that, what is going to replace the thing that you're addicted to in your life? What is the, because there's time. You're wasting time on those things, right? That's the worthless aspect of vile. What are the things that you can use to refill that void in your life? Um, there's lots of good things that you can do. But you've got to find things that are obviously going to protect you as well. And then you want to use external resources. Uh, there are counselors. Some of, these, some of the problems that we encounter are things that uh, require counseling. The counselors to help work you through those, uh, to identify the triggers, to identify methods that you can use to protect yourself from these entrapments. Um, in the case of pornography specifically, there are resources like, uh, there's called Covenant Eyes, and there's a, um, another one called Conquer Series. Covenant Eyes is, actually has an application that you can put on your mobile device, and that can report back to your accountability partner if you have browsed to anything that is maybe um, but, but suspicious, right? Suspicious behavior. So these are... These are some of the things that you might want to consider if that's an issue. But you may not be dealing with those specifically in your life, but we're still struggling with sin. And so we might have fallen for the sin multiple times. What happens? So to that point, just... Um, close with here I just want to kind of read a little brief story about the prodigal son and what he after he's failed for the hundredth time for the thousandth time right what what happens so this is a story written by an individual that I follow online um, he himself struggled with alcohol a um, couple years ago a lot two years ago he lost both his father to illness and he lost his son at the who was a midshipman at the naval naval academy he lost his son um, in an accident uh, when they were hiking as part of their training in um, in south america actually in peru but uh, he had 
he'd just come out of this recovery from his alcohol, and he, he wrote this. And I thought it was maybe appropriate for us, regardless of what sins we're dealing with. Almost five years to the day after he returned home the first time, the prodigal son emptied his bank account, packed a few changes of clothes, and snuck off for the faraway country again. The first year back, he was glad to be home. He licked his wounds and worked on the strained relationships with his family and community. The second year was toughest, though. He still couldn't get the taste of the pig slop out of his mouth, not to mention the shame that chewed away at his soul. The third year, things leveled out a little. He started feeling more at home, back in sync with his former life. In the fourth year, certain things began to irk him. The same things that irked him before he left the first time. His old itches longed to be scratched. In the fifth year, it happened. All the former allurements came knocking, wrapping their knuckles on his heart's front door. More than the shameful hell of feeding pigs, he could taste the sensual paradise of feasting on felicity. More than the raw guilt of hurting others, he could recall the intoxicating thrill of others um, serving him. Come join the murder, the black ravens of his heart cried. Come join it again, old friend. And so he did. The prodigal relapsed, resinned, redestroyed his life. You know him or her. Maybe it's your brother. Maybe it's your best friend. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's you. That thing you swore you'd never do again, you did it last night. You fell off the wagon. You left the straight and narrow. You opened your heart to the wrapping knuckles of former pleasures that once destroyed you. Prodigals have a way of finding themselves right back in the pigsty. I remember when I did. The music has faded into the night. The fair weather friends have all ditched you and the temporary euphoria of so-called freedom has been replaced by the iron shackles of shame. As you stare into the black eyes of the nearest muddy and stinking pig, what do you see? You see your face. You see your soul. You see and know what you've become again. In that moment on the plains of your heart, Two armies line up in verbal array. Heaven and hell contend within you. Hell shouts, now you've done it. You've gone and done it, you stupid piece of garbage. Listen, can you hear your older brother scoffing as he tells all his friends that he knew, he just knew you'd do it again? Can you hear the servants making you the butt of their jokes? Can you hear the congregation whispering? I suspected he wasn't truly and sincerely repentant the first time. You're a lost, lonely, helpless cause. You're not even human. You're a pig, and that's all you'll ever be. And so hell spits, hell accuses. But there's another voice, not, sh not shouting, but whispering. On the plains of your heart, it's the voice of heaven, the familiar lilt of a dad's voice echoing down the long hallways of hope through your ears and down to the deepest, darkest caverns of your pain. He doesn't accuse. He doesn't berate. He only mouths two simple words. 
in which are compressed the full expanse of heaven's redemptive love. Come home. Come home, my son. Come home, my daughter. Come with your hands still clutching the bucket of slop. I don't care. Come with your mouth still sticky with the lipstick of licentiousness. I don't care. Come with your breath reeking of gallons upon gallons of liquor. I don't care. Come with your whole body slathered in pigsty mud. I don't care. All I care about is you. You are all that matters. Come home. Come home a second time. Come home a third time. A thousandth time. The father will not stay on the porch. Arms crossed over his chest and stared down at you as you come crawling on your knees to beg for mercy. The father will not serve you tasteless leftovers and make you sleep in the doghouse. The second time, the third time, the thousandth time. He will sprint like a madman to meet you down the street, throw his arms around you, kiss you, and command that the fattened calf be barbecued and the keg tapped. Second and third repentances are not met with half-hearted parties in the father's house. He goes all out every time his sons and daughters come home. He goes out every time the sons and daughters come home from the faraway country. Come home. The front door is unlocked. The calf is fattened. The father is standing on the porch, his hand shading the sun from his eyes, scanning the horizon for the familiar image of the one who is and will ever remain his precious, beloved child. Come home. That's the heart of our God. That's the heart of a holy God. That's what he wants of us. That's why we choose to obey because we love, not for salvation, not to be saved. We know that our works is ne will never be sufficient. We choose to obey because we love, because he loved us. We're going to close with uh, another hymn. Um, and in particular, I, it's the Savior like a, sh a shepherd lead us. I want us to think of it particularly on verse 2 because I think it's very relevant um, to our... Well, you'll get it when you, read verse, when you, hear, when you sing verse 2. But let's take a moment and let's pray before we do that. Lord, you're gracious to us. You, a holy God, you, a God who, through the advent of this season, as we celebrate through the advent of this season, became man. You dwelt among us. You walked among us. You experienced the things we experienced. You taught us what integrity is. You taught us what sinlessness is. You exhort us to live as you did. And as we struggle with our own humanity, Lord, we desire to live like you, as you've taught us and challenged us. But we know we fail. But we know that you will forgive us.
You are the loving Father with the arms wide open. May we come running to you. In Jesus' name, amen.